This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Great War Channel podcast. Today, recording on a very special date for German history, which is the 9th of November. It's a date in German history with such a significance that it has its own Wikipedia entry. November 9th in German history. A day that will live in infamy and whatever the good version of infamy is, and a whole bunch of other complicated stuff. Yeah. So just briefly going through the list. Um, left liberal leader Robert Blum was executed after the Vienna revolts in 1884 on the 9th of November. Of course, we have for us relevant 1918, uh, where uh, Emperor Wilhelm II was dethroned in the November Revolution. Then on November 9th, 1922, Albert Einstein was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics. Why this is in this list, I don't know. Um, then in 1923, kind of a spoiler alert, we have the Beer Hall Putsch. And I think the most two well-known dates for uh, or ninth, November 9th in German history are um, What the what we call the Reichspogromnacht, or what the Nazis called Kristallnacht, uh, where Jewish synagogues and property was destroyed in 1938, and of course we have the fall of the Berlin Wall. So why is this relevant to our topic today, Jesse? Well, it's always relevant because it's one of those incredibly fascinating little coincidental factoids of history that drive some people. Uh, crazy, I suppose, as to why these things happen, whether there's rhyme or whether there's reason. But more specifically, because uh, today we are talking to Professor Sunken Neitzel about some topics that are related to this period and what's going on in those tender, let's call them that, years for the German army just after the First World War. Um, although we do branch out we do plan to branch out into a few other a few other topics as well yeah mr neitzel's new book indeed is spanning um a good chunk of unified german history um it's called deutsche krieger uh, and it's about the german military from 1871 to uh, 2020 and it's more like a cultural sociological analysis of the and of the through lines and the differences between the different mili German militaries that have existed continuously since Germany was united in 1971 which I found very very interesting because usually you know that's a whole debate here about periodization but usually we only look at you know 
maybe the German military in the First World War or the Reichswehr, you, even though the Reichswehr, I think even on YouTube is kind of an underdog, but we really talk about the transition from one to the other. How do they get down from that massive imperial German army to those, you know, Versailles mandated 100,000 troops? I mean, that is not an easy task. And that's one of the questions I put to uh, Professor Neitzel. So we were very lucky that he agreed to our, very lucky and very happy that he agreed to our interview because usually Mr. Neitzel, uh, Mr. Neitzel's work is more um, talked about in the big German newspapers. Um, but nonetheless, we're very happy that he has found the time for us on this 9th of November, 2020. And without further ado, here is the interview. I'm very happy to welcome today onto the Great War Podcast, our next guest who is joining us from Germany, his name is uh, Professor Sönke Neitzel, and he's a professor of military history and the cultural history of violence at the University of Potsdam. And as many of you may know, he's the author of numerous books, but his most recent book uh, that is appearing now is called Deutsche Krieger vom Kaiserreich zur Berliner Republik, which, if I may translate for those of you who might not uh, know German amongst our audience, roughly translates to German warriors from the Second Empire to the Berlin Republic. So Professor Neitzel, I hope you're okay with that impromptu translation of your work and uh, happy to have you with us. Yes, um, I'm happy to, to join you. And of course, I'm happy with that translation. It's exactly, um, exactly what it's, what it's uh, in German, yeah. Good. Um, then my spontaneity didn't, uh, didn't bite me. Then let us jump in, though, to, uh, to the book and to your inspiration for the book. How did you get interested in this question of German war culture slash military culture? And when you decided to investigate this over a longer period of time, what were your objectives? What were you hoping that you would be able to accomplish with this kind of book? Well, my, the starting point was possibly my last book, uh, which I published in 2011 and 2012 in English, Soldaten which I, you know, had an inside view on the culture of the Wehrmacht, um, also a big chapter on atrocities. And so really this internal, yeah, grammar, I would say, and we were used to um, a model of frame of references, different frame of references of the German armed forces and how you could explain um, what they did on the battlefield, but also if it comes to atrocities. And I always, when I when I was going to write that, this was in 2010. This was the time when when the German um, army was very much involved in the in fighting in Afghanistan. And I always thought, you know, what's the difference between these guys now fighting in Afghanistan and the Wehrmacht soldiers? I mean, obviously there are a lot of differences in, in the federal state is different, the constitution, political system. But you know, if we if we compare the grassroots perspective of a, of an infantryman of a platoon leader. But what's the difference? This was, you know, remind in my head somehow. And then, then I, after I finished my book Soldat in 2011, um, I started by, say, 2013, you know, deploring that, that thing. And my idea was, you know, what are really the differences, but also the similarities um, of the various armed German armies in the last 150 years. And, and I really tried to, to investigate a bit more in this, what I called tribal culture. So the culture of the infantry platoons and the companies, the battalions, 
what we call Germany Truppengattung, so the, 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 especially the paratroopers. So what is really um, what stayed the same always, and um, with all differences. This was really something I was keen on, and so I decided I, this might be a good topic for a book. Okay, um, then. In terms of uh, some of what's been of interest to us in particular at the Great War Channel, something we've been focusing on are the transitional years from the end of the First World War into the interwar period. Um, how does that transition work between the Imperial German Army, which is, of course, massive until uh, the Versailles Treaty comes into effect, and the new, smaller, and much different Reichswehr, well, much different in some aspects. Um, and one idea that sort of goes along with this transition is the state within a state. So how was the Reichswehr's relationship or role in the state different to that of the Imperial Army? I mean, this, this transition period was very complicated. And, and of course, this problematic um, aspect of you know, reducing a, a mass army to first 200,000 men or 400,000 men, then 200,000 men, and finally, uh, the final arrives there, uh, then after after three years to 115,000 men, so 100,000 army and 15,000 navy, and to reduce the officer corps uh, to just 4,000 officers. So this was a very painful process, of course. I mean, uh, all these, these people were, were conscripted and, and drafted into the army. Okay, they just went home and had enough from the war. But for professional officers, and we have tens of tens of thousands of them in the First World War, I mean, they possibly had never done anything else than fighting and being an officer. And what is what is their perspective? So that's really a problem. And of course, you the, another problem is so who are you going to select? That's that's a problem to use it to just one hundred thousand, fifteen thousand men. And the other thing is, I mean, this was a new state. It was not a monarchy. It was a republic. But where do you get the Republican officers from? I mean, they don't come from the moon. And you need officers, you need trained officers, experienced generals. But it took decades to produce, in inverted commas, a general. So it's not just that you say, you know, you're wearing your uniform and you are a general. No. And of course, all these high-ranking officers, and everyone was coming from Imperial Germany. And that, that frame of Imperial Germany, which collapsed. And then, of course, there was a... At least a tendency from some people, the first, first, um, 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 one of the first, uh, you know, the chiefs of the of the army, um, Walter Reinhardt, they they realized, okay, this is a new state. Look, this is a new state, and we should at least have a new tradition, a new organization, and this new state should have a republican army. But uh, unfortunately, he was then then resigned after a short while. And what we then see is that, that the Reichswehr very early onwards drifted into a, an army which was not a state in the state. I'll come to this in a second, but I think which was very reluctant to the political system of the, of the Republic. So the state of the state is, is, a, is a very interesting phrase. It's this Staat und Staate. And if you, if you do research on that, it really emerged on the political scene in 1919. So state in the state is something which was born in the German revolution in, in these years of chaos. And of course, it expressed the fear of the, uh, and the understandable fear of the social democrats. What will the old elites, in particular the old army do? 
question mark. And we are not sure. We are not sure if they really know, have a, have a coup or something like that. So there was a, a reluctance. And of course, the, the Reichswehr or what was left, what was left from, from the armed forces and some Freikorps or militia units suppressed very brutally some left-wing uprisings. So there was a skeptical towards the military. And in the end, interestingly, you could see that this, this phrase of state in the state is somehow, I would make the argument, in social democrat hats until nowadays. So there's suspicion towards the military. However, um, state, in the, state within the state means, would mean, that an armed forces has a different value system than the state uh, or major parts of society. And this is definitely not the case. We should remember that from 1925 onwards, um, Paul von Hindenburg was the president of the Weimar Republic, and he was the old field marshal of the Great War. So, I mean, at least a very large minority, at least a very large minority, if not a small majority of the German society, shared the same values and the same skepticism towards the Republic. So this was not just a small group, you know, living in a corner, living somewhere in the caves and, 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 and planning, planning a coup. They were quite loyal to the fatherland and quite loyal to the president. So therefore, I think um, it's very much a social democrat approach saying a state within the state because the, the, the Weimar coalition of left-wing parties which was in power in 1919, was not in power anymore after a couple of years, and then more right-wing constellations ruled um, the country and had the majority in the parliament. So it's much more mixed. And the, one of the problems of the Weimar Republic is that there were no, not enough Republicans in the state. So therefore, yes, there was a huge skepticism of the Reichswehr towards and the Republic, the Republic, the Weimar Republic, but it was not a state within the state. Okay, now let's drill down into that not a state within a state. Um, when it's going through these, when the army is going through these uh, painful reductions, as you called them, uh, required by the Versailles Treaty, they need to eventually get down to uh, just over 100,000 men or the army uh, to 100,000. Who is doing the selecting of who stays and who goes amongst these cadres, in particular the officers? And like who eventually gets to stay? I mean, who gets these green cards, so to speak, that wins the lottery and uh, they don't have to be unemployed uh, Prussian aristocrats? Yeah, so the, the happy few. So in every federal state which, which had an army, so in Prussia and Württemberg and Saxony, also in Bavaria, there were army commissions. And these army commissions had a selective process, and then they produced lists for every rank. So for, for the captains, for the majors, for the lieutenant colonels, they had lists. Um, and then you had to get on top or on top 10 or top 20 of, of this list to get, get a post. And what I went for my book in, into the archive in Stuttgart as an example, as a case study for Württemberg, because unfortunately all Prussian files between um, allied um, to British air attack on Potsdam you know, burned down, so we have mm, almost nothing is left. But for the Württemberg army, we have all these lists. And this is interesting that in the end it was, because there was a bit of rumor that um, 
General Sieg. Um, so the, the head of the German army only wanted to have staff officers. There are other rumors that it's more frontline officers. And what you really get, the example of the Württemberg army, is that you get a mixture. You get a mixture. Uh, on number one is definitely a staff officer, but on number two is a frontline officer. And you have, um, even on the higher ranks, on the top 10, I think you have three officers among them, Rommel of the Württemberg um, Mountain Battalion. So battle-hardened, proven frontline soldiers. And there's a mixture with staff officers. And normally these staff officers have seen at least, you know, a bit of frontline service. And what is again interesting is, even if you are going, if you wear the Pula Merit, the highest Prussian medal, if you won that, this is no automatic ticket into the club. So there are some members who are going to won the Pula Merit, who became officers in, in the Reichswehr, but definitely not all. Definitely not all. So in the end, you could see it's a, it's a sensible mixture of, okay, battle-hardened stormtroopers, but not everyone. Um, and it's a good, and also staff officers, but not all staff officers. So I think it's a very, to my mind, a very rational choice. Although we just don't know exactly why this person's number one and why this person's number two, but on the, overall, the selection seems to me, um, from from an from an HR perspective, human resources perspective, quite successful. You can see that that all these. Officers who, who became members of, of the Reichswehr after the First World War, these 4,000 officers, um, normally made, made big, big military careers in the Second World War. So I think the selection was, was, there was, it was systematic, there was a reason behind that, and it was a mixture of all kinds of experiences. Okay, now on that theme, let's say, of mixture, in terms of the professional experience or frontline experience, um, if it's mixed... Is that also the case, or is it possible to tell in terms of the politics of those left in the army? Because the impression that one often gets is, yes, okay, the army is, you know, a reactionary conservative force. Eventually they will uh, cooperate with the Nazis. But in these earlier years where things are more in flux in general in the country, are there some not so conservative elements left in the army or is it really pretty monolithic? My argument was it's very difficult to tell what, what the political attitude was really um, uh, of these officers. I think there was a chance in 1919 and 1920 to get a more liberal vice fair. But then you have uh, specific incidents, for example, the resignment of Walter Reinhardt. Um, and you have people like um, Grüner, who was not then the Reichswehr minister, but only the Reichswehr minister in 1929, which was then too late. So you have figures who were more liberal and who left the Reichswehr, who left politics. And what was then left was really uh, very conservative. And of course, there were there might have been the chance to get not social democrats, possibly not very very few officers were. Uh, had a, you know, a lines with, with the social democrats, but at least more liberal ones. But with that shift towards Hans von Sigt, uh, this old guard officers of the Imperial Army, I think the overall it was clear that that the Reichswehr was very very conservative. 
But this also, you know, this was a very chaotic situation. This was then the kaputsch, and I don't want to get into, into details. And at least, to put a long story short, there was a chance. There was really a chance, I would say, until um, 1920, 1921, to get a more liberalized. Yeah. But because of, of, of uh, a lot of incidents, yeah, it turned out to be differently. Which doesn't mean that they were all Nazis, so that we should differentiate between conservative attitudes and, and the national socialists. And the Reichswehr was very much against national socialist movements. And they only became, you know, they merged with the national socialist movement after 1933. And then, you know, very, um, very much so. But before that, it was this conservative attitude um, um, orientation towards imperial Germany, but definitely not, unfortunately, not non-liberal. But that's, uh, I find it fascinating that, that there was this window where things were not so sure. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, Robert Gervat's uh, research into these sort of kind of forgotten successes. I, I know the word forgotten is overused, but these sort of overlooked uh, successes of the, of the 1918 German Revolution that he just, um, he just published about. Um, now I want to shift gears a bit because we've 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 hinted now about the later fate of the of the army or the later choices of army leadership, let's say politically, and I want to take up um, an argument that you've made comparing the Imperial German Army to the Wehrmacht in the Second World War, and you've uh, you've sort of stated that the Imperial German Army was more capable of learning than the Wehrmacht. And when I first heard that, my initial sort of instinctual reaction was a bit of surprise because like superficially, I mean, the Wehrmacht won, you know, more dramatic victories. They fought in more theaters of war, in more different conditions for longer against more enemies. So a lot more stimuli in order to learn from. But why do you think that the Imperial German Army was then the better learning institution? I mean, the point is that you have to look um, uh, in both world wars, the first and the second, on the whole length of the war. And not only on the Blitzkrieg period where the Wehrmacht, you know, um, conquered the whole of Europe. And uh, I think that the Wehrmacht was, was very good in the first period, but then learned nothing more and stayed with that, with, that, with that doctrine and tactic of the first half of the war and didn't change. And this was very different of the imperial army, with the imperial army. The imperial army, you know, had to learn very quickly again and again and again. In 1914, everything collapsed, you could say. So the big offensive um, um, did not work out and it was stopped and they were, you know, in France. Uh, and and the, no ammunition left, etc., etc. Et but then the Imperial Army has to learn defense. Everything was regarded towards offensive in the pre-1940 period. But then it's about at the end of 1914, it was clear we are going to be on the offensive in the east, but on the defensive in the west. And they had to learn that trench warfare, which they did. They stopped with, with um, uh, inferior numbers of troops. They stopped in 1915 Allied offensives. And then um, they had to relearn the offensive, which, which failed in 1916 in Verdun, which, which, which worked okay in 1915 on the Eastern Front. But the, the most intellectual problem of the First World War, the biggest problem of the First World War, 
in my mind, is how to achieve a breakthrough through a well-defended front line. So this was then uh, at Isonzo in, 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 in autumn 1917, at Riga, but mainly in, in spring 1918. So the Germans attacked in the, in, in the Michael Offensive against a well-defended front line of the British and the French, and they managed to break through. The problem is that they had not the tools of 1940. There was no motorized divisions, there were no tank divisions, and therefore um, they couldn't achieve a collapse or an encirclement operation. But they achieved the breakthrough against you know, a heavily defended, a heavily defended um, front line. And, and they were the only one who you know, were able to achieve that. Not the British, not the French, they were just pushing the Germans back but no really major breakthrough. And they achieved that by learning. So this was not possible in 1914, not possible in 1915, but possible in 1918 with you know, this, this improvement in artillery, this improvement in stormtrooper tactics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Wehrmacht achieved nothing comparable over the whole course of the war. And therefore, I think the Imperial Army as a learning institution was, was much better than the Wehrmacht and possibly even much better than the Bundeswehr. Aha. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a statement with other interesting uh, consequences if, if any of our listeners are uh, federal ministers from Germany by chance. Um, I wanted to slip in uh, a bit of a follow-up question. In terms of this comparison, if you will, uh, between these two eras of German military history. Uh, as you were answering uh, that question, it reminded me a bit about a book by Isabel Hull called Absolute Destruction, I believe it's called, if I remember correctly, yeah, yeah. where she really draws a lot of parallels between the military culture of the Wehrmacht and the Imperial German Army, always kind of going for this battle of total annihilation, whether that costs them the war or not. Um, how do you think that concept meshes or doesn't mesh with the results of your research and, and the topics that you've sort of developed in your work? I mean, I think the, the concept of, of military culture, uh, you know, expressed by Isabel Hull, I think is very interesting. And I think that, that countries do have a, have a culture and that they do have a frame and, and that they are different. Um, and there are two sides of the medal. As one side, it's about tactics and doctrines and this kind of, of mission command and, and attack and battle of annihilation, etc. Um, of the German side, or one side of the medal. The other side um, is atrocities. And Isabel Hull is making the argument, okay, you have from, from you know, the wars of unification, 1871, in the end towards Auschwitz, there's a direct connection because this is a German way of war, and the German way of war also means it's very brutal, a lot of atrocities, etc., etc., etc. And I think it just doesn't work for the First World War. Um, I mean, I know historians love to see that kind of Indiana Jones, nasty German thing, and it's quite popular. Um, and, and the big man Holwick, the German Chancellor, somehow the Hitler of 1914. So if you compare... Um, also the German atrocities, and there were many German atrocities in the First World War, I think there is a, with other um, belligerents, I think there is a categorical similarity in how the great powers fought the Great War. And you could see, if you compare the Imperial Army with the Wehrmacht, you could see 
I mean, this is a totally different thing, not in doctrine, but in terms of atrocities. So uh, the Wehrmacht was more, more, more brutal, more, more, more brutal. And, and you can't just, I mean, you can compare it, but it was on a totally different level. And I think I, I have a, a one, one quote from my book is that the, the emperors of the First World War fought a different war than the dictators of the Second. So uh, I think, yes, there is a footprint of German, and you could even, you know, I would even follow Isabel Hall to say, you know, even a specific interpretation of international law if it comes to war, how you deal with, with civilian resistance, for example, and the Germans were quite brutal on that. Uh, but, but this kind of, you know, pathway from 1871, the 18th of January, 1871, the foundation of the German empire, the arch sin of German history, which, you know, laid the foundation of Auschwitz. I think this is by far, this German Sonderweg, by far too, too simple. But again, I think it's still feasible to think about culture and what culture means and, and how distinctive it is. And I think you can, can see that, how the German waged war. And to a degree, there is a German way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase the atrocity thing of pre-1939 so strong. This is possibly then the difference. Okay. Um, now I want to skip actually to another book that you've written, and you mentioned it at the beginning of our uh, discussion because this one has been translated into English, and we'll get to how our listeners can can find out more about that later. Uh, although the first word in the title is German, it's Soldaten. Your main source for this, or one of your main sources at the very least, was these transcripts of what German prisoners are saying to each other when they're being recorded by their captors, uh, the British, and don't know it. So can you tell us, um, maybe give us a couple of highlights of sort of what, what you felt that these recordings revealed and how that fits with the general sort of historical literature about regular German soldiers, most of which is not really based on evidence when they don't know, you know, who's listening or where it's going. I mean, first of all, there's always, you know, um, uh, the best moment of life if you as a historian discover a new source. I mean, we might discover a, a new war diary, etc., but but the category of a source is, is known. Bugging reports were not really known um, until then. And this was, of course, a very interesting and very thrilling time. And of course, you, you possibly there's no source to get closer to the mindset of these soldiers because this was soldiers, you know, fellow soldiers talking to each other immediately after they were captured. So it's just well, sometimes just one, two, three days after the capture. So it was very, very fresh impact of the war and we don't get closer to their mindset i think with no other source and of course i mean it's, it's a whole variety we have you have in this kind of documents other nazis who really are true believers and a lot of people just don't care about ideology it's, it's just about doing a job and uh, and these kind of things and and very much focused on on, on their everyday social life on being a good soldier being a good tank driver being a job winning a medal, getting a promotion, a full stop. And also what then, of course, is interesting and was also a bit shocking is what they thought was possible, this frame of reference, what they thought the wars of, yeah, is possible. So killing here, killing there, there was no surprise. I mean, even if they talked about atrocities, there was no surprise saying this can't be true. So it was in their, in their mindset, yes, this could happen. Who cares sometimes? But also then, of course, the... 
if it comes to killing women and children, if it comes to mass killing of prisoners, if it comes to the Holocaust, then of course there was was at least you know a feeling of distance saying you know this is, this is not this is not correct. But it was not in the center of their perception, even if they saw mass killing. It was not in the center of their perception. The next attack, the next promotion, uh, the core group was much, much more important. And I, even in my, in my, in my, my, my last book, um, I, I draw a conclusion from that. But I think possibly the, the, the grammar of thinking of normal soldiers, you can learn from these bugging reports a lot about. And then how much you are focused on your daily business, how much you neglect possibly uh, the general frame, because you can't change that. And, and you won't have a, um, a cognitive dissonance and you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to think too much about the task, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then even if the task is problematic, you somehow find a way, you know, to justify yourself. These kinds of, 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 um, um, of mechanism, um, how to be a wall and, and what, what drives you on, on this material is really wonderful. Unfortunately, I mean, prisoners, by the way, prisoners of war were on both sides also backed in the First World War. It started in the First World War. And it started with very few prisoners, for example, so key personnel, so pilots of Zeppelins, of, of, German, of German aircraft, and the Germans did the same. There was a primitive technique to do that. In the Second World War, you had a mass technique, you have good microphones, etc. you have bugging camps and, and tens of, or tens of all, yeah, thousands of prisons were bugged and, and, and protocols were made, etc. And this is really a wonderful source. Yeah, it, um, it definitely was uh, an eye-opener for me. I really felt like just from an emotional point of view, never mind an academic point of view, it's a very sort of, it really is an immersive uh, type of source to, to, read, um, to read a book that has used that. Um, hearing you talk about that um, makes one think of the phrase, the banality of evil, although of course that has a lot of other things attached to it and it's beyond the scope of our discussion today. But nonetheless, that's what came came to my mind. Um, I think that brings our, our chat today to an end, Professor Neitzel, but I really want to thank you for joining us. And I want to make sure that our listeners know that if their curiosity has now been piqued for uh, the topics that you are interested in, either in Deutsche Kriege, for those who read German, or also in Soldaten, which uh, despite the name, the rest of the title is in English and it has been translated. Where would you recommend that our listeners might be able to get their hands on your books? I mean, it depends on where you are living. So, so normally it's the easiest thing to get to Amazon. <laughs> they have it. Or to <laughs> other, or if, you, if you are not easy with Amazon, you could definitely go to a bookshop and, and normal every bookshop, um, you can get these, these books. It should be no problem. So then, the, and, and the book, um, Soldaten was translated into 19 languages. You can even read it in Japanese or Chinese or whatever, Hebrew, whatever you want. Um, but I mean, my latest Deutsche Krieger, John Morris is at the moment still available in German, so we're just waiting for translation. All right. Uh, thank you once again for joining us. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.